What does a franchisee do when its brand suddenly falls off a cliff? Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, executive editor with Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this episode of A Deeper Dive, I talk with Greg Flynn, the owner of Flynn Restaurant Group, the largest restaurant franchisee in the United States. Flynn's company operates Applebee's, Panera Bread, Taco Bell, and now Arby's, following his recent purchase of the 368-unit U.S. beef. Flynn discusses that purchase on the podcast. He also talks about how his company got through a major sales crisis at Applebee's two years ago and why his operation is now reaping the rewards of the casual dining chain's comeback. Flynn also discusses how a company that now oversees more than 1,200 restaurants that generate more than $2.3 billion in sales can stay close to the customer. Please have a listen. Okay, I'm here with uh, Greg Flynn. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Happy to be here. Uh, so uh, you just got uh, finished with, uh, I think, uh, your biggest deal yet, uh, buying U.S. beef. Uh, tell me a little bit about what what uh, attracted attracted you to the RB system. Well, you know, it's a whole combination of factors. Uh, you know, the segment is attractive, the brand is attractive, and the specific company and its assets were attractive. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just begin with the segment. You know, Arby's is mostly in QSR. It, you know, bleeds a little bit toward fast mm-hmm. casual, but it's essentially a QSR box with a slightly better product than most QSR. But the economics are very similar to QSR. And, you know, it, we are trying to create a portfolio that, you know, in ways mirrors the industry um, mm-hmm. as a diversification strategy. And to do that, you know, we needed to be more weighted than QSR. And then adding to that, QSR unit economics are very attractive. They're better than the other segments for the most part. Um, so it was attractive that this was, you know, a large growth in our QSR uh, representation. Um, second, Arby's, the brand. I, I think it's just a great brand. I mean, mm-hmm. very differentiated brand. There's no other national competitor that does quite what it does. And it's um, similar to Taco Bell and Panera in that mm-hmm. way where, you know, they're – almost categories of one. You know, Arby's is like that. Now, Arby's, of course, competes with, you know, other QSR providers, and it has to be very mindful of value and such. But because its products are very differentiated and there's a core group that just loves the Arby's product, you know, Mm -hmm. they don't necessarily compete mostly on price the way that a lot of the QSR burger guys do and the pizza guys do. And, um, and, and, that, and that's attractive. Uh, and then there's, you know, the fact that the Arby's core customer really is, you know, um, I don't know, fanatic, but I mean, there, it is a beloved brand. We commissioned a, a, an independent brand study when we were doing our diligence, and the only brand out there, you know, major brand that ranks sort of higher in terms of customer you know, enthusiasm for the brand is Chick-fil-A. Um, mm-hmm. But really? people who like Arby's love Arby's, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and then there's the brand leadership, which is really excellent. I mean, starting with Rob Lynch and his yeah. you know, team at Arby's Restaurant Group. Uh, and, you know, Rob has a background in marketing from Taco Bell, and he's got excellent executive skills, and he's put together a really fine team, and they're doing a great job, and the brand has really good momentum. And then there's Inspire and Paul Brown, and, you know, uh, Paul is putting together a really world-class support structure for the various mm-hmm. brands. Um, and then there's Rourke. And you know, Rourke is a, 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 you know, 
a bunch of really smart guys. Neil Aronson is one of the most brilliant investors in the industry and maybe in any industry. Um, but they also have demonstrated a uh, commitment to owning and operating restaurants, which is very mm-hmm. meaningful to me. You know, at a time when other restaurant franchisors are shedding restaurants as quickly as they can and going ultra light on their balance sheet, which creates a you know, real misalignment of interest between a franchisor and franchisee. You know, Arby's has gone the other direction, and they've mm-hmm. you know, increased their footprint in owned and operated restaurants. And that's just great. It creates a wonderful alignment of interest. You know? mm-hmm. So everything about the brand I really like. And then there's a specific company, you know, U.S. Beef. So it's a 50-year-old, third-generation family business based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You know, its core states are Oklahoma, Arkansas, Kansas, Missouri, Illinois, Colorado. I mean, real Arby's country. Like, they love Arby's mm-hmm. and where these Arby's are. Um, and it, it's not a turnaround. This acquisition is not buying a turnaround. We're, you know, and we, we never write anything, uh, underwrite anything to do better than it's already doing. But in this case, you know, they are doing well. And, you know, we hope to make it better, but, you know, we don't need it to do better for this to be a good buy for us. Um, and it's a great team, and the whole operating team came with us. So, mm-hmm. and then and the last, you know, it's just at scale, right? right. I mean, normally, we need to get into a brand and make one acquisition and, you know, then make another and start building restaurants. And over five years, you get to a critical mass of, you know, several hundred restaurants. You know, this was one-stop shopping. <laughs> so, <laughs> great in that. Right. Um, and so, you know, everything about it was a really good, um, good fit with our strategic plan. Mm-hmm. Were you looking into the Arby's brand before this uh uh, came about, or or was it just uh, you know it was just sort of an opportunistic thing? You know, I, I've tracked it. It, it. Well, it was opportunistic, but mm-hmm. I've tracked the Arby's brand ever since Rourke bought it because I've always been working. You know, under Rourke's ownership, the brand has really enjoyed some good momentum, and you know, a lot of I think Arby's sort of wrote the playbook for a brand turnaround. It's really understand. You know, what you do uniquely well, what customers uniquely want from you, mm-hmm. lean into that, you know, figure out how to talk to customers, you know, your core customers about that, and then give them more of it. And mm-hmm. they just did a great job sort of doing all of that. Right. And, um, and so I've been following it, and, you know, Applebee's, you know, started stumbling, you know, several years ago, and... So I was especially mindful of how did Arby's turn around, and it, it, it frankly kind of became the playbook for the Applebee's turnaround as well. So is Applebee's sort of using a little bit of that playbook? Because I think that uh, um, uh, that I, frankly, I think that one of the great things that Applebee's has done over the past year is, has been sort of hitting on to what has been its core customer, which is you know it's, it's a it's fundamentally a bar and grill chain. So yeah. don't forget the bar part of it and get people excited about going to have a good time there. And that's what it's all about. Yeah. I, I think they've really closely followed the playbook and, and, and done it very well. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, Applebee's sort of lost sight of what it is uniquely good at, what its core guests really value about it, and mm-hmm. started trying to be things that it really isn't in its nature. Mm-hmm. And so the turnaround in Applebee's was getting – 
back to the basics, back to what people mm-hmm. really love about it, what they wanted more of, and then figuring out a better way to talk to them about that and to give them more of it. So, you know, mm-hmm. these turnouts always are, are accompanied by, you know, marketing campaigns that are more effective than what was going on before. And in the case right. of Arby's, that we have the meats campaign is one of the greatest in the history of the industry, I think. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Applebee's advertising, since John Sawinski came on board, is just superb. I mean, mm-hmm. I, everyone talks about it all the time now, and it's the, the results, you know, um, in sales and traffic, you know, uh, support the idea that the whole turnaround worked, but especially the marketing. Yeah. Marketing is important, and I think it gets it gets overlooked. I think in in the franchise transaction, but w- that's the one thing that you're buying into as a franchisee is you're buying into what the brand is doing to market itself because that's that's kind of their fundamental job, isn't it? To to sort of market what they do, and 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 uh, you know, and and, and Arby's have, have done a, a pretty phenomenal job at that the last few years. Yeah, I mean that's that's the main responsibility of the franchisor is. Mm-hmm. You know, um, develop products and figure out how to market those products and the brand generally. Like, mm-hmm. And they have to do some other things too, like you know, prototype development, training manuals. But but those pale in comparison to the core marketing, you know, right. um, duty they have. Right. I, I think that the 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 Arby's Taco Bell comparison has been really good it's in terms of you know both Taco Bell and Arby's have do uh, and certainly Arby's now do a really good job of knowing who their core customer is, and then just hitting them over the head all the time. Um, you know, Arby's basically said, hey, our customers love meat, and that's what we're going to do. And, you know, and Taco Bell, you know, knows exactly who its customers are and have always done a really good job of of, of, of hitting at that particular group. Yeah, I completely mm-hmm. agree. Right. So um, you are now as large, I think you're larger in terms of sales uh, than Cheesecake Factory, and you're about the size of Red Lobster at this particular point. Um, how do you make sure that, uh, as an operator of such a vast network of restaurants, how do you make sure that you're, you know your operate, you know your 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 store operators are sort of close to the customer, and you still have sort of what that that heart of franchising is, which is, you know, you're closer to the customer, you know what's going on on the the floor. How do you do that on such a large scale? Well, you know, starting with Applebee's, we realized or came to believe that it is um, not really feasible to operate multiple units over multiple geographies well consistently with mm-hmm. a classic command and control structure. So, you know, your average restaurant company, a really average country, a company of almost any type, is a, a pyramid, right? And mm-hmm. it's a command and control structure where there's, you know, one man or one woman sitting on top making all the major decisions. And the pyramid exists to implement those decisions. And that's especially true of the restaurant industry, which is not, you know, it's, it's more traditional in a lot of family businesses and things like that. Um, I don't think that works well over multiple geographies. It works just fine in, you know, a smaller geography where, you know, whoever's sitting on top is close enough to the restaurants to really to know their guests, to know their employees, to know their competitors, to know their vendors. But once you're spread out over multiple geographies, you know, and take take me in my role, like, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have enough information to make good decisions you know, in any given geography. Now, like, there are people who are better suited to make those decisions than I am, who are much closer to their businesses. 
And yet there are very real scale economies in the business. I mean, everything you have to do for, you know, finance, admin, IT, purchasing, training, real estate, you know, you are, you can do it at a lower cost and, and do it better and attract world class talent to do it if you do it at scale. So our whole mission is to try to get the best, best of both worlds here. How do you get, mm-hmm. you know, the benefit of local owner operations? and scale economies with, with better support. And so we have a really unique structure. Think of it as, mm-hmm. in terms of sort of a state and federal system where, you know, our markets are states, and they operate really pretty autonomy, you know, with, with a higher degree of autonomy than a classic, you know, mm-hmm. restaurant market and a multi-market business would. And, you know, they're run by market presence. We call them market presence. It would be sort of the you know, equivalent to a director of operations and other companies. But, you know, we give them that title because we also give them very real authority to run their businesses with greater autonomy. And and that's operational flexibility. I mean, Mm -hmm. we allow and, in fact, we have a lot of different operating practices and policies throughout our business, you know, consistent with being in mm-hmm. brands and consistent with some, we call it federal laws to outcomes around food safety and things like that. But, you know, what we try to do is say, here's the goal we're trying to get to, right? And, and lay out, you know, our objectives, but then not tell people how to accomplish them, not micromanage, mm-hmm. you know, their process. Say, as a business, we wish to get there. Now you guys figure out the best way for you to get your markets there because you've got a different, you know, wage structure in your market. You have a different competitive landscape. You've got a different customer profile. You know, you've got a different footprint or presence. I mean, it's just a lot, so many things that mm-hmm. are different. Um, and, you know, so, so they make better decisions for their businesses because they're closer. But, but equally important, when they make the decisions, they are much more committed to accomplishing the goal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I just tell them what to do, you know, half the time they say, well, that's a stupid idea. You know, that's not going to work in my market. So it's sort of this, you know, half-hearted effort, right. you know. Whereas if they, you know, plot out a course with, you know, regard, they and their teams with regard to their unique conditions, then they're really going to put their heart and soul into accomplishing the right. results. Um, and so that's the state part of it run by market presence. The federal part is mostly one of support, as I mentioned, that mm-hmm. we have an absolute you know, world-class support uh, infrastructure at Flint Restaurant Group, uh, you know, principally operated out of Independence, Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also an element of federal law, and federal law is you know, as to certain outcomes. So I mentioned before food safety. That's one. I mean, no one has any latitude not meeting, you know, our brand standards for food safety right. or the standards of their local municipality. You know, they, they have to do it. There's just no two ways around it. No discretion. Uh, another one that's really unique to us, but also important, is we call it zero tolerance, and it's not sexual harassment. You know, sometimes zero tolerance refers to that. In our case, zero tolerance refers to. Um, the physical condition of our restaurant assets. And the condition we're looking for is perfect, you know, as yeah. nearly perfect as can be accomplished given that these are high-intensity, you know, restaurant assets. Um, and, and why do we do it? You know, it's because really there are three principal benefits. One is 
the idea that a stitch in time saves time. You know, if you mm-hmm. just keep your get, – get your restaurants in good condition and keep them there, it will cost you less money to do so in the long run. Second is the effect on our guests, that, you know, we believe guests either consciously or unconsciously notice the difference in restaurants that are very clean and well-maintained and ultimately it drives sales. But, but honestly, the most important effect, uh, benefit of our zero tolerance policy is on our own people. And, you know, our, it is a war for talent out there, and mm-hmm. our number one mission is to be the employer of choice, right? The best employees have a lot of choices right now, and they can get a job almost anywhere. And we wish to be where the best ones wish to work. And part of that is the best employees want to work with people with high standards, Mm-hmm. and who are willing to invest in their assets, right? And the people who are willing to work in poorly maintained restaurants, you know, dumps, call it, mm-hmm. are the ones that don't have another choice. <laughs> so, right. you know, we wish to, um, you know, it, it's all about showing that we we have high standards, that we're professionals, that we care, that we know it's important to provide a clean you know, and well-maintained work environment, and mm-hmm. our employees really value that. And, and right. You know, especially the ones who've worked other places, they see how unusual that is in the industry. Mm-hmm. Right. So, you know, back to the whole federal law part of our state and federal system, you know, having, achieving our zero tolerance uh, standards is federal law. You must do it. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it. You know, an easy mm-hmm. example is gum on the sidewalk. You know, it's one thing to get gum off the sidewalk in Minnesota in February, <laughs> right, where it's hard as a rock, and a different thing to get it off in Southern California in July. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. You figure that part out, but you got to do mm-hmm. it, right? right. You know, right. That, that's an easy example. Right. So it's interesting. You're saying that not only do is it a good idea to keep your stores in really good condition from a customer standpoint, uh, but it's important for 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 uh, attracting good employees. I think it's almost more important. Uh, the effect of, you know, attracting and retaining good employees. Have you seen a labor environment like this before? What other ways are you dealing with it? Uh, so I, I haven't. I mean, it's the tightest I've ever seen in my career. I know that's a common experience mm-hmm. these days. Um, right. How are we dealing with it? Well, largely through what I just described, you know, doing everything we can to be the employer of choice. And, mm-hmm. you know, you need to pay competitively, of course, but you know, pay is not the only thing. And, in fact, in, for many people, it's not even the most important thing. It's just one of the elements they're considering. Uh, what we really strive to do is differentiate ourselves on the other things. You know, pay competitively, but, you know, for instance, have very well-maintained restaurants. Um, mm-hmm. have, have restaurants which are 100% staffed. I mean, there's nothing tougher on restaurant staff than being understaffed. Right? Mm-hmm. So it is a very high priority for us to make sure all of our restaurants are 100% staffed all the time. Um, okay. You know, we have benefit packages, which are very competitive, we believe. Um, we have, um, hopefully, a very honest and open culture, and mm-hmm. a culture which uh, values open communication, uh, candor, and integrity. Um, and I think mm-hmm. that goes a long way. I mean, you know, People generally, but employees in the restaurant industry can sniff out bullshit from a mile away. So we always try to, you know, be very, very honest about what it is we're really saying, what we're asking. You know, don't pretend mm-hmm. it's something else. Um, yeah, and things like that. 
Right. And then we 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 also try to use technology to right. make our employees' lives easier. You know, it's a tough industry, but there's a lot of good technology that can make it much better for, you know, inventory management, for labor mm-hmm. scheduling, for, um, you know, you guys have written, you know, mountains of material on it, so you know what right. we're talking about. But we've always right. been, you know, pretty early adopters of that kind of technology. Right, right, yeah. Yeah, people, you know, workers like technology as much as customers do. It's kind of, it's the way yeah. we operate these days. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a little bit about uh, uh, Applebee's again, and, and I know going back a couple of years, that had to have been, and maybe I'm wrong, but that had to have been probably maybe one of your biggest, if not your biggest test as an operator within that system. What did you learn during that period about Applebee's? Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, was, it was the toughest couple of years of my career. Um, mm-hmm. What did I learn? That it's mm-hmm. better to have growing sales than sales that are falling rapidly. <laughs> As if you didn't know that before, but like this is a real illustration mm-hmm. of like how much how much negative operating leverage there is in the business when sales mm-hmm. go the wrong way, and how to deal with that. Um, and the good news is, you know, we at Apple American Group um, are a very tight team that we've been, mm-hmm. you know, working together for many years. So no one lost their head and no one lost faith. You know, mm-hmm. as sales were falling, we became ever more resolved to execute well in our restaurants. And we never relaxed our standards um, for maintenance, for 100% staffing at all. Mm -hmm. And and our team executed superbly throughout this period. And if, you know, there are many ways we can measure it, but by all of the, you know, uh, key performance metrics of our business, like the Apple American team just really nailed it you know, um, mm-hmm. throughout the downturn. And we've outperformed the system in terms of comp sales for 10 years running, but that never meant more than it did over the last couple of years, where the difference between, you know, two down and four down was really mm-hmm. very meaningful. Um, right. And, you know, so that when the recovery uh, really started to hit this year, you know, we're seeing great results. We're continuing to outperform the system, and everything – we did to sort of keep our cool and maintain mm-hmm. our commitment to running our restaurants well. It was really take off in spades right now. Mm-hmm. So I'd say the right. biggest lesson, lesson I learned is it's a cyclical industry um, generally, and then there are mm-hmm. things that, you know, self-inflicted wounds the brands sometimes, you know, suffer. And, and we'll get through it, you know. Mm-hmm. Often you need to make some changes and do the turnaround playbook and, you know, all brands go through it at some point, it seems to me. But mm-hmm. but don't lose the faith and don't lose your head. Right, right. And, and like, honestly, I, I, think, I think the guys at RMH sort of lost the faith and lost their head. I will admit that I was skeptical for much of the year about Applebee's comeback. I'm no longer skeptical. The company has used strong marketing and a message that has brought the chain back to its roots as a neighborhood bar to get customers excited about eating there again. And frankly, that's what the restaurant industry is all about, getting customers excited to eat out. And Greg's point about keeping the faith is an important one for restaurant operators, whether they are franchisees of a brand or they run the brand themselves. Over the years, many companies that suddenly face sales challenges overcorrect. They desperately look for measures to generate sales, often through heavy discounts. Or they cut costs too much, hurting service and quality. Often, these efforts only make matters worse for the brand or for its franchisees or both. 
That's an important point as we head into 2019. Many restaurant companies have faced sales challenges in recent years, but as Flynn and Applebee's have proved, as have companies like Olive Garden and Texas Roadhouse, maintaining strong customer service and quality are core to any comeback effort, even in casual dining. Overly aggressive discounts may generate traffic in the short term. Cost cuts can stem losses temporarily, but they are bad for the brands over the long term, and companies are better off avoiding them. I would like to thank Greg Flynn for joining us this week on the podcast and taking his time out for us. A Deeper Dive was edited by Kimberly Colley. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Peter Romeo, Heather Lally, Sarah Rushworth, and Pat Kobe. You can find this and other episodes on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You can also find them on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.